turn now to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and back into Ecclesiastes. It's been, uh, it's been a few weeks. I want to thank Eric for, uh, for preaching for the last three weeks. That's the first time he's ever preached three weeks in a row. And I think we're, we can clap in church. Let's, let's thank Eric for that. Because um, I remember the first time I preached three weeks in a row. It, was, it nearly destroyed me. I, it was, uh, I was an assistant pastor at New Valley Church in Chandler here. Um, and uh, yeah, it was tough work. It's, it's hard to do this and to do it consistently. And so just we thank you, Eric, for, for serving us in this way. We've had a newborn, um, and I think he's around here in the church somewhere today as well. But I'm glad to be back with you. And back in this book, Ecclesiastes, it does kind of feel like we've been here for a long time. Uh, although it hasn't been that long. I was counting it up. I think this is like the 10th or the 11th uh, sermon that we've had in the book of Ecclesiastes, but we had a break for Easter and we had a break for us having a baby. And so it's kind of felt like it's stretching on, but there's just so much here. We wanted to finish this out for just a few more weeks. And there's really a turn here in chapter nine where Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, is beginning to end. He's beginning to come to some of his conclusions and, um, and there's a great chapter break here that we ended with before I was, I was gone for a few weeks. And as he starts into verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, I laid all this up to heart. All of this previous. He's beginning to end. He's beginning to land the plane. He's still got some questions as we've been talking about real questions that Solomon has. But he's going to start revealing some of his answers. And so I want us to read the first 12 verses of chapter 9 together. Let's read. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head that he has given you under the sun because, <clears throat> sorry, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. 
like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. So I'd like to say this morning that the kingdom of God is more like a theme park than a county fair. Let me explain myself. So I grew up in a small town uh, in Mississippi, and, uh, you know, town of 12,000 people, Yazoo City, Mississippi, and there uh, was not a lot going on, but every, you know, once in a while, a county fair would come through. The Yazoo County Fair. This traveling carnival would show up and would uh, hastily put together some roller coasters um, and, and set up, you know, funnel cake stands and all these things. And this was the, the quality entertainment for the year. And the thing that is notable about the county fair is that it was based on a ticket system. If you wanted to enjoy the things of the county fair, you had to get tickets. So actually, it was free to get in to the county fair. You could just walk right in. But once you wanted to do something, you had to buy tickets. And so let's say that young Gray was given $10 uh, at the county fair to walk around and to buy tickets. And if the tickets were $2 each, then I would get five tickets. And then I would have some math to do, right? Because this roller coaster over here is the biggest one, and that takes two tickets. And these smaller rides are only one ticket. And so would I rather ride the big thing twice or more times the smaller rides? This was what we had to decide. It was free to get into, but expensive to enjoy. Then my world changed when I went to Six Flags over Dallas. As it does for everyone, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty much the moment. A full-on theme park. The model of a theme park is different. You pay the greater amount up front, and then you are free to ride anything that you want. The cost of entry was greater, but the freedom was greater still. And when I say freedom, you, you still had some limitations, right? It was, wasn't as if once you paid that, you could do anything absolutely that you wanted to. You had limitations. You were not able to ride everything at once, for instance. You were limited by your own body. You were limited by how fast you could walk. You were limited by how long, long the lines are. But within those limitations, there was a freedom. Pay the greater cost and then have more freedom. As you walked into the theme park, at least when I was growing up, you received a stamp on your hand. And this stamp said, you are now free. You can now do whatever you want to do within the bounds of your own limitations. The kingdom of God is more like a theme park than a county fair. Solomon says, God has already approved of what you do. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the people of God. He's writing this to the faithful followers of Yahweh, of, the, of God. And he says in verse 7, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. God has given you His stamp of approval. 
And again, just like the theme park analogy, that doesn't mean that we are not without limitations. Solomon has labored throughout this book to tell us the limits of our humanity, how much we can actually enjoy, that we should embrace being creatures, that we are finite, that we are going to die, that things can't ha- we can't have joy all the time. There's all these limitations, but within this limitation, this life that God has given us, we have God's stamp of approval, His freedom to enjoy His good gifts. The Scriptures teach us that we are free creatures. Which I love the tension in that that phrase. We are free creatures, but creatures have limitations. We are created ones. We are still dependent. This statement, God has already approved what you do, is not cheap. Just like the theme park, there is a great cost that purchases this freedom. But the thing that we need to see this morning is this. We are approved. We have been given God's stamp of approval. If you have trusted in Him, if you have placed your faith in Christ, as we will see, you are an approved Christian. And I want you to take in this mantra this morning um, to describe this passage The mantra of the approved Christian is this, I am not in control, but I am alive and I am free to enjoy. I am not in control, but I am alive and I am free to enjoy. This is what Solomon tells us. We'll go throughout the order of the passage. These are the things that he says. First, he he actually begins and he ends with reminders that we are not in control and that we don't have control of our lives. He bookends his statement about God's approval with these two sections where he says these reminders. Look at verse 1. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Our lives are in God's hand. That means that our lives are not in our own hands. We are limited. What are the things that we are limited by? What are the things that are outside of our control? First, he says, the events of our lives. Look at the second part of verse 1. Whether it's love or hatred, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does uh, not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as one who shuns an oath. The things that happen, the things that produce love and hate and envy and all the events of our lives, these are things that happen to us seemingly indiscriminately. We can't control that when those things happen. And he says, this is a calamity. This is, this is hard to live this way when the events of our lives are out of our control. Not only the events of our lives, but the, the length and the impact of our lives. As we've talked about many times, Solomon repeats these words in verse 3. This is an evil that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they are alive. And after that, they go to the dead. Again, Solomon says, we've talked about this so much in the book of Ecclesiastes, we don't know What's going to happen to us? We don't know the ultimate impact of our lives. We don't know how long our lives will be. And all of us will go to the dead at some point. And in the meantime, we're full of evil and madness. This is 
what he's preached over and over again. We also don't have control over the success of our efforts. Again, a theme that we have talked about. Jump down to the other end of the bookend, the last part of the passage, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. He's like a fish. He's like a bird. We get caught in the snare or in the net. Solomon reminds us the fastest people don't always win. The strongest don't always win the battle. The wise don't always have the most bread. The intelligent don't always have the most money. The knowledgeable don't always have the greatest favor. And he's, he's said this so many times. How many times has he said this to us? I guess he's going to stop saying it when, when we start believing that there isn't a one-to-one correlation between righteousness and success and evil and destruction. That's been one of his themes throughout. Is look, you can't plan your life so that when you do really good things, then you get really good rewards. Or when you do really bad things, then instantly you're punished. Because there's counterexamples. Sometimes the unrighteous succeed. Sometimes those who we you know, dislike or those who have done something shady, they advance and those who are faithful don't. This is the reality. Success is not a sign of godliness and pain is not a sign of unfaithfulness. Even though at times those two go hand in hand. That's the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs tells us what wisdom normally is, what we can expect. Normally if you work hard, then you'll make more money. Normally, um, you know, if you are healthy, then you'll, stay, then you'll stay alive longer. These things are true, but they're not absolutely true. Ecclesiastes writes to, is written to tell us the exceptions to the rules, as we've said. Sometimes this doesn't work out. What we need to know is that we don't have control, ultimate control of our lives. Solomon seemingly writes so negatively about this, like, oh my goodness, this is so depressing. But no, right in the middle, the heart of this passage is where he gives us this freedom. It's not that you should take all that in despair. He's actually saying, stop trying to figure out the calculus behind it. Stop trying to make everything add up. Stop trying. In other words, what Adam and Eve tried in the Garden of Eden, to be like God, knowing good and evil, to know everything that's going to happen in your life. Once you drop that, once you see, I am not in control, once that becomes part of your mantra, then you are actually much freer to enjoy God's good gifts. I am not in control, but I am alive. And I am free to enjoy. I am alive. Solomon reminds us the gift, the first gift, is being alive. Look at verse 4 with me. But but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten." Living, living, living. Three times he says, actually there's a beautiful little parenthesis. If you jump down to verse 9, he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. 
that He's given you under the sun because it's your portion in life. Three times. Living, living, living. Life, life, life. He says, between being dead and being alive, if you are here and you're listening and you're able to read the words of Solomon, you are alive. And this is a great gift. These words are hard for, for some of us as we're reading them to, to take in because it seems like Solomon, as he has in a couple of other places in Ecclesiastes, seems like he's discounting any life beyond the grave. It seems like he's saying everything is about being alive right now and that we have no hope after death. As we said last time this, this came up, this is not what Solomon is saying. The whole perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes, as we said from day one, is this is life as it's perceived under the sun. He's talking about how we understand life as we experience it. And as we experience life, life is supposed to be a good thing to experience. And to die is always a bad thing. Christians need to understand this better than we do sometimes. Sometimes we talk about death like it's a good thing. You know, Oh, he's, he's dead. That's a, that's a good, it'll be better when that happens because of what comes after it. But the scriptures don't make that distinction. They say life before the grave and life after the grave are both good. But the grave is the enemy. Death is the enemy. It's, in fact, the last enemy that is destroyed when God makes everything right. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so whether life is on this side or life is on the other side, life is the good gift. And he's saying it's a good thing to be alive. That's his emphasis here. And we don't know what's after the grave. From an experiential perspective, we have hope. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. We believe many things that the Scriptures say, but we, don't, we can't picture that. We can't see the reward. And so he says, enjoy this reward right now. It's given to you. It's your share. You have a share right now of life. And life is good. It's God's gift. And to be done with life is a loss. It's always a loss. It's always the enemy. The resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth are glorious not because there's something better than life, but because they're the continuation of life. Life is God's great gift. It's what He breathed His breath into us. The resurrection from the dead means that that life gets to come again. It's not something totally different, even though we will be transformed. It's not like it's altogether different than life now. Life now is a gift like it will be later. And he says, even good things and bad things, love, hate, envy, these things that we experience while we're alive, hard things, good things, they're all kind of part of the gift. They're part of the share. And those who die have no more share in what is done under the sun. And what's done under the sun is good. To be alive is good. Even to be alive... As a living dog, he says, is better than a dead lion. It doesn't matter how much of a lion you are in life, how powerful you are. You can be the biggest lion, but a dead one is, from that perspective, of no use. A dog is less powerful, but he's still alive. And life is always to be preferred over death. 
Death isn't a good thing. All life before and after the grave is God's life. And to be alive is a great gift. That's something that we should embrace. Solomon teaches us this. It's somewhere where we align somewhat with pop psychology, like to embrace your life and to say, this is good that I'm alive and that I have the gifts that I have is a good thing. I'm not in control, but I am alive and I am free to enjoy. Enjoy what? He gives us this beautiful three verses here about life. And it's, it's not a full picture of a great life, but it is a faithful snapshot. Look with me in verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil, which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This beautiful, faithful snapshot tells us the gifts that God gives us that we are free to enjoy. Meaningful provision, meaningful relationships, and meaningful work. All three he highlights to us. Meaningful provision, he says... Your food, your, what you eat and you drink, God approves of you enjoying those good gifts. Of course, to continue our analogy, within the bounds of your creatureliness, within the bounds of your humanity, within the limitations, not to excess of eating and drinking, but with freedom. The provision of clothing, he says, put on robes of white, let not oil be lacking on your head, this pursuit of beauty and cosmetics. And yes, we should be picturing the spa, right? The old ancient Hebrew spa. White robes, oil on the head, the best shampoo, picture of indulgence within the bounds of your humanity. Meaningful relationships. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He's given you under the sun. Enjoy the one who God has given you in particular. All the days of your... Remember, I don't like that word vain there. It's, it's, the word is hebel. It's, it's short. It's a breath. It's ephemeral. You have an ephemeral life. It's, it's here and it's gone. It's not vain. It's not without meaning. It is just short. And so He says, enjoy your wife, your husband, other relationships would be implied here. Why do I say that? Because he's going to call all of this your portion. And earlier in Ecclesiastes, he talks about your portion being your children and your friendships and other things are included in this category. Those whom God has given you. Meaningful provision, meaningful relationships, meaningful work. Solomon concludes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. You shouldn't look at your lack of control and your lack of ability. Yes, sometimes the race goes not to the strong. Sometimes you don't gain more money by being intelligent. Sometimes that happens, but you should still work with whatever God has given you because of 
the work itself. Again, within boundaries. We have boundaries on this freedom. Will work frustrate you? Of course it will. We've talked about this throughout Ecclesiastes. This hard labor to wondering, what is it that I do? Is it, is it good enough? He's not saying you have to feel meaningful every second of every day. But there is a gift here to be able to look back on your work and like God did on the seventh day and all the days previous say, this is good. This is good. And the way that he summarizes this as he says, your portion. <laughs> that is your portion in life. Again, something we have talked about before. The portion there referring, the same word referring to the land that Israel receives in the promised land. A portion was given to all the tribes. When they take that portion, that, that word actually encapsulates all three, three things I just said. Meaningful provision, meaningful relationships, and meaningful work. Because when they took the land, and they lived on the land together, and they had provision from the land. Whatever the land produced was theirs to enjoy. It was their vineyard. It was their fruit. They raised it, and it was theirs. And they, they raised it together. It was for them to apportion amongst themselves as a family. It was their relationship. Their portion was also their life, shared life together. And it was also their work. It was what they got up and labored to do every day. And so, he says, you've been given a portion by God to enjoy. It means work, it means relationship, but it also means provision and good things. And there was a cycle amongst those things. Now Solomon says, asks us, what is your portion what has God given you? What are the array of things, the cycles of your life that God has given you, the work, the people, the things? What has He given to you to enjoy? Because He has given it to you and He approves of your enjoyment. That is what Solomon says. How can I be sure that God approves of me and my life? I love the way that Solomon phrases this. When he gives us this portion of God's approval, he says, basically, this approval comes from God only. God has already approved what you do. And I hope you can slow down and see the grace of that statement. It is a statement, it's not a proposition. It's not an argument. It's not a request. It's not saying, if you do X, Y, or Z, then God will approve of you. It's a statement, again, to the people of God. So it's not just to everyone in the world. That's not what I'm saying. But it's a statement of God's grace and approval. It's His stamp. Solomon is saying what Paul the Apostle Paul would, would later labor to reveal that righteousness doesn't come through an effort or works or being better than the next person. Those are all things that Solomon has said are hebel. They're vanity. You can't advance far enough. You can't work hard enough. Your life is still outside of your control. That's all vapor. Righteousness comes by divine granting. God approves. 
without respect to us and our accomplishments and our doing things for Him. How can that be? Knowing especially what we know intuitively about ourselves, that we have walked so far away from Him. How it it makes us uncomfortable even to hear, or for me to say a blanket statement, God approves of you. That just, oh, not me. No, I, no, it's probably not. Why do we feel that way? Because doesn't He know how far I've walked away from Him? And there's a sense in which we can read something like this and we say, that's cheap. That God would say, I approve of you. Like He doesn't know. Like, how, how does He know that He can approve of me? Is this God's cheap way of just saying everything's fine? No. Just like the theme park, the cost of entry is very great. And what the Scriptures reveal as we see the unfolding story of God is this. The cost of entry is great, and it's a cost that is given to you, not one that you achieve yourself. You don't pay this cost. The approval comes and is found because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. At the cost of Jesus' life, we are approved. We are the people of God. This is God's stamp in the unfolding of the Scriptures that He says, you are approved. Later the Scriptures will say, because of the work of Christ. And it's going to pick up some of this same language here and it's going to apply that approval to us even from the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at the four images that are central to God's gifts. All four of these are, are, are highlighted elsewhere in Scripture. He talks about bread and wine. He talks about garments of white. He talks about anointing with oil. And he talks about the husband and the wife. And all four of those are pictures of salvation in Scripture. Eat bread and drink wine. The images that Christ carries with Him to the Last Supper as He sits at the table and He breaks bread and He pours the wine and He says, this bread is My body broken for you. This wine is My blood poured out for you. And so, yes, it's a picture of enjoy God's gifts, but it's also the greatest enjoyment of knowing that this is what was done for us. If you want any part of me, Christ says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is going to be the way that you are approved. What about the white garments? Paul says those who are approved are those who have put on Christ as a garment. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the final feast, the final enjoyment of the start is pictured for us with the white robes of God's acceptance. The oil, the anointing of oil is the sign of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Again, the seal of our salvation. We just said it in the assurance of pardon. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this anointing is of God Himself. He gives us the Spirit. Pentecost Sunday. This is what we celebrate. The husband and the wife. Paul's argument from Ephesians chapter 5. That this beautiful picture of love and respect and laying down our life is one that points us ultimately to the mystery of Christ and the church. 
And so the message of all of the Scriptures is this, if you are in Christ, you are approved. So be free. If you've put on the robe of God's salvation, be free with what you wear and enjoy. If you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, then enjoy the great indulgent gifts that God has given you. If you have eaten and drunk of the holy heavenly gift of Christ Himself, then feel free to feast on everything that God has given you. You have God's approval. You are free. You're a creature, but you are free. I came across this letter from Martin Luther, the great reformer, and he is writing to Prince Joachim of Anhalt. This is just in a collection of his letters, and he gives this advice to a young prince. He says, Be merry with your friends, for gladness and good cheer, when decent and proper, you're a creature still, are the best medicine for a young person, indeed for all people. I myself, having spent a good part of my life in sorrow and gloom, now seek and find joy wherever I can. Praise God, we now have sufficient understanding of the Word of God to be able to rejoice with a good conscience and to use God's gifts with thanksgiving for He created them for this purpose and is pleased when we use them. If you have trusted in Christ, you are part of God's people. Hear this. You have God's stamp of approval you can go and find joy wherever you can. Let's pray.